The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 8, the four surviving party members, Kagan, Girios, Umura, and Eridine depart the underground laboratory complex and, using a rough map that Kagan found on one of the dead goblins, make their way out of the forest. The trek goes smoothly until they run into a group of giant rats who prove to be more dangerous than at first they seem. Eridine narrowly escapes the encounter with her life, but the party finally manages to reach the road. Following that road, sometime around midnight, they reach the outskirts of the township of Burke. Chapter 9, Part 1, Day 9, Near Midnight. The sign by the door showed a black painted weathercock on a brown background, with the establishment's name painted in small letters below. The North End Inn. The inn was a stout two-story building of wattle and daub, the kind where the second floor was bigger than the first in order to save on taxes due. The roof, as was typical in the small towns of Camertine, was of heavy thatch. Overall, it looked like some kind of fat wooden mushroom. Kagan pushed open the front door, and the far-off jingle of a small bell signaled the entrance of guests to the owners. The party entered a cozy lobby that smelled of the fireplace. The fire in it was now burnt down to winking orange embers and white ash. Momentarily, a voice came from beyond an interior door. Long past curfew. We don't take drunks and ruffians at this hour. Or any hour. Kindly go away. Kagan opened and closed the door again, causing the jingle to repeat. Oh, bother. All right, I'm coming. But if you turn out to be a gaggle of drunken louts, I'll turn you out on your... Oh... A wizened old man in bedclothes appeared around the corner. He was rail thin and had badly receding hair of pure white. The appearance of the party seemed to have temporarily taken away his power of speech. A pair of rooms, if you would be so kind, said Umura. Uh, sure. God's alive. What happened to you lot? Robbers? Goblins, said Kagan. And lots of them. About those rooms. Goblins? You four are lucky to be alive. Well, I was hoping you'd not turn out to be drunk, so I really can't abide them. They break things, and more often than not, you're cleaning sick out of the sheets the next day. 
uh, but I'm rambling like an old man and you look tired. That's plain to see. If you'll just sign in here, the rooms go for a silver apiece that's per room, per night, in advance. Will that be... Not a problem, said Umura. We have coin. Have no worry. The old man eyed the woman's tattoos surreptitiously and swallowed. But Kagan jingled the coin purse, and that seemed to satisfy him. Kagan passed over a gold piece, and the innkeeper counted out coins in change. Very good, then. He opened the thick ledger on the counter, paged ahead to the next available blank page, and got an ink and quill from a compartment below. Names and last location, if you please. Town has a law, says I must record both before I give you the keys, you know. Rooms on the second floor, the two at the end of the hall. Breakfast is from six to seven if you want something hot. After that, there's bread and butter in the pantry. Oh, and my name is Gurdon. Just then, a sleek black cat jumped up on the counter and grazed Gurdon's arm, then moved onto the ledger and curled up for a nap. Off with you, Norris. This here is Norris. He's the true owner of the place, at least he thinks he is. Makes it a point to meet all our incoming guests, he does. Ugh, move on there, cat. How can they sign in with you sitting on the book? Gurdon lifted Norris from the counter and set him on the floor. The cat shot him a scandalized look and trotted off. As the group signed in, Umura saw that Eredin made a special effort to sign in last. Having noticed this, Umura hung back an extra second to read what the young girl had written in the book. As she did, her mouth became a thin line. Seconds later, she caught up with the others heading upstairs. The younger woman's face showed that she knew Umura was onto her, and she started to explain, but Umura held up a finger, indicating that Eredin should wait before saying anything. Once the men were in their room, and they were in theirs, they talked. In fact, the two talked well into the small hours, until at some point, neither would be able to say who went first. They both succumbed to a deep and dreamless sleep. Eredin was woken in the morning by a polite rapping at their door. Umura was in a chair with one of her books in her lap. She looked like she'd been there a while. No thank you, the sorceress told the closed door. Appreciate the reminder, we'll come down later. Begging your pardon, came Gurdon's voice through the door. But it's not about the breakfast. Um, I'm afraid the sheriff's men are here, and they insist that you and your companions accompany them to the armory. Apparently the, um, uh, sheriff has some questions for you. Eredin was sitting bolt upright in bed. She had gone as pale as the sheets in her lap. One moment, please said Umura, getting up and placing the book on the chair. She shot Eredin a meaningful look and a nod. Eredin's eyes darted toward the window and back to Umura, but the sorceress was shaking her head no. Umura unlocked the door and opened it a crack. She spoke through it in a low tone. Could we not have the morning to get settled? We don't even have clothing. Ah yes, uh, as to that, the sheriff insisted I bring you right away, and advised me to lend you each one of my wife's frocks. I've, I've already given your friend some of my clothes. Uh, they're waiting downstairs as we speak. Uh, I'll leave them outside the door. All right, we'll be down in five minutes. Fine, fine. I'll give the guards a mug to keep them busy while they wait, but do hurry. Please. Umura shut the door. She turned to Eredine. You have nothing to fear. You say you've never been here? Well, even if someone here knew you by sight, just just look at you. Eredine looked at her filthy hair, dirt-encrusted fingernails, and her cuts and bruises. Her nose crinkled as she thought. I suppose you're right. Let's get this over with. She got out of bed, and the two of them went downstairs. 
The two soldiers were wearing mail and half-helms. Over the mail, they wore tabards depicting what must have been the local lord's sigil. A shield in the background with an oak tree in the fore. Each had a longsword, scabbarded, at their waist. They were setting down their mugs and speaking to Kagan and Gyrios, who, wearing proper clothes for the first time, looked oddly unfamiliar. The innkeeper was there as well. He had both hands in front of him, fingers splayed. It's the law of town. I have to report guests such as yourselves without delay, especially seeing as you mentioned goblins. One of the soldiers, a tall man with heavy mustaches, set a mug down on the front counter. That's right. If he hadn't reported you, it'd be his ass. Standard procedure. If you be decent folk, there's none to worry about. Ah, the ladies are here. Come on, let's go. The other guard went out ahead, and the one who spoke stayed back to take up the rear of the escort. The party members muttered good mornings to each other, but for the most part, they remained silent and contented themselves with taking in the sights of Burke as they made their way to the armory. Between the Lines The Township of Burke Previous to this episode, the township of Burke was just a made-up name on my made-up map. I didn't have any ideas as to what or who might be there. I only knew it was a place Kagan had been headed, in search of work before he was captured by the goblins. Now that the characters are here, however, it has become necessary to write something, and so, without further ado, I give you my first town in Tale of the Manticore. Welcome to Burke. Burke is a small but quickly growing town of about 1,500 souls. Under the nominal stewardship of Lord Skelling and the actual stewardship of the sheriff and de facto mayor, Marlock, the town has begun to experience a genuine boom in the past couple of years. As it was previously a frontier outpost and garrison, the center of town is dominated not by the church, which is situated on a small hill on the east side of town, but an armory. This had been built some 50 years ago when relations with the dwarves of the nearby Windless Rise had not been so friendly. After the hostilities with the dwarves subsided, the outpost fell into disuse. But in the past five years, it has been revitalized, mostly due to the efforts of Sheriff Marlock. Marlock was a stern man of short stature and middle years. He never smiled and he never joked. Perhaps, despite his height, as a young soldier in Silmoral, Marlock consistently overachieved and became something of a minor rising star in the king's army. His success became his eventual downfall when a young lordling's son named Vance Brookhart, also rising through the military ranks, was passed over for promotion in Marlock's favor. Shortly after this incident, strings were pulled and Marlock found himself reassigned to the edge of nowhere. Welcome to Burke. But Marlock was not the kind of man who would just accept his fate, and so he did what he was best at. He excelled. Through his efforts, the town prospered and then fairly boomed. He had the armory expanded into a kind of town hall. The city walls were dismantled and repurposed, and new business was opened. Lord Skelling, a petty noble given these lands as an insult under similar circumstances to the sheriffs, became the very fortunate main beneficiary of Marlock's success as merchants began to arrive and then settle in Burke, where of course they had to pay a tax. Other than the church, which the party could see on its hill to their left as they were escorted to meet the sheriff, and the armory itself looming quite large directly in front of them, the party saw, or rather smelled, the other distinct feature of town, 
The tannery. The smell was bad, and it carried on the wind. But the profits were excellent, and it employed dozens of men. The rest of the town was typical of the age. Buildings were single-story, with thatched roof and open-shuttered glassless windows. Children and their dogs played in the streets, a small marketplace bustled with goodwives. And to the right, the never-stopping, echoing sound of the woodsmen hard at work. The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm. When all planes of existence fall to ash, there is only one realm that remains. The Iron Realm. Before you in all directions, deep in the dark, there lies the maze. The Iron Realm. Millions of miles of corridors, caves, tunnels without end. This is the ultimate dungeon. Orcs, goblins, kobolds, trolls. Ready your sword, your spells, your crossbow, your warhammer. The Iron Realm. Keep close, your companions, for they are your only hope for survival. Elf, fighter, wizard, cleric. There are no rerolls. There is no way out. Yet here, in the dark, if any of the merciful gods still remain, you may find the strength you need to fight. The cunning you need to hide. And the luck you need to stay alive just a little longer. Iron Realm! Iron Realm! Iron Realm! I am your maze master, Abel Enzo. Get your dice and graph paper, and be sure to bring your friends. I'll see you in the realm. <laughs> Get the podcast at theironrealm.com or theironrealm.blogspot.com. There be dragons here. Chapter 9, Part 2, Morning. Party status. Kagan, 6 out of 8 hit points. Umura, 5 out of 5 hit points. Gyrios. Four out of seven hit points. Eridine, two out of four hit points. Umura has memorized Charm Person. The party, led by their escort, eventually reached their destination. The armory was a round, grim-looking building of two stories, built of large, mossy flagstone. It was situated at the top of a gentle but long slope and had a commanding view of town. A pair of recently constructed buildings flanked it. To the right, a wooden town hall. To the left, a small and freestanding jail cell. It appeared currently unoccupied. In front of the jail were a pair of heavy pillories. Both of these were occupied. Of the men trapped inside, only the tops of their heads and their hands were visible. Signs at their feet, really just boards with white painted letters on them, proclaimed their crimes. Drunkard, said one. Brawler, the other. Rise and shine, boys. It's another beautiful day, said the guard with the long mustaches. One of the men grunted in response and tried fruitlessly to turn his head, 
The other stayed motionless and continued to stare at the ground. A single heavy wooden door was the only way in or out of the armory. They passed through it. This way, please. Inside, the place was cool and dim. The only light came through a series of arrow slits placed at regular intervals. The main room was dominated by a low table at which were seated two men and a dwarf. Off to one side, a boy of perhaps 12 stood ready to carry out orders. The man at the center seat did not look up until some time after they arrived. He was in the middle of writing something. Every so often, he would dip his quill in an ink pot and continue writing. Finally, he signed the note with a flourish and handed it to the boy. Come back directly, he said, and do not tarry. The boy's chin bobbed up and down, and with a whispered, My lord, he was off. Behind the table, a large banner had been attached to the wall. On it was the same figure as worn on the guard's tabards, a black oak on a white shield. The rest of the banner was of light blue. The man at the center seat now looked over the companions. He was a small man, with thinning brown hair going white at the sides. His eyes were plain brown, but the effect of his gaze was disconcerting. I'm Sheriff Marlock, he said at length. I'm told your party was attacked by goblins and the four of you survived. By the looks of you, this ring's true, is it? We were not originally of the same party, but yes, the rest is true, replied Kagan. Very well, said Marlock. Burke has had a problem with goblins recently, and the problem's getting worse. I'll need a full account of your experiences. His tone did not brook argument. Do not spare the details. First your names, and where you're from. I'm Kagan of Briar Hill. Girios of Camranth. Umura of Zacia. And this is my cousin, Sheris. Umura already had a foot on top of Kagan's and was pressing down meaningfully. Girios received no such warning, but did not act in any way surprised. It took a full hour, maybe more, for the group to share their story. Apart from Eridine's name, they stuck to the truth and gave as much information as they could. Marlock took notes, occasionally nodded, and said little. Toward the end of the tale, he did interrupt Girios, who had started rambling. Pardon me, cleric. Um, let's see. Umura, is it? Did you say that you can speak the goblin tongue? Not fluently, but yes. I understand some words after having been their captive for so long. It's a fairly simple language. Mm-hmm. He scratched at a note and wrote something else. We're interested in rooting out these pests. They seem to favor the south road that leads through Burke, and they are definitely a plague upon the merchant trade. People are scared to travel in small groups, so we've seen only the large caravan so far this spring. This season could be one of our best to date, and I'd like to see it realized. The problem is, we don't know where they are, and the Kingswood is enormous. Well, that's just one problem. We also don't know how many of the bastards there are, or who, or what, leads them. We have a map, said Kagan. These words had an immediate effect on the other men, for Marlock leaned back in his chair and whispered something in the dwarf's ear. The dwarf nodded minutely, and Marlock turned back to Kagan. We'll need to see that map, he said. Hire me, replied Kagan. After all, he had originally headed Burke's way looking for employment. Here was a chance for something with a better pay grade than forestry. You best not be trifling with me, young man, said the sheriff. Hire me. You're going to send out an armed party to investigate, right? Hire me and let me serve as guide. After it's done, you keep me on. The other man considered the offer. We'll take you with us, said Marlock, placing his elbows on the table and lacing his fingers. And you'll be compensated. Whether we take you on after that depends on a few things. Captain Tor here will need to get a look at your sword arm. See if you can swing a weapon without hurting yourself. 
The other man, presumably Captain Tor, smiled grimly. We'll also have to see if there are any available positions. The subtext was clear. There would only be available positions if some of the men died. I'd like to come too, said Girios. The goblin stole my holy symbol, and this may be my only chance to get it back. Umura likewise volunteered, hoping to recover her spellbook, and Eredin did as well. She was a wanted criminal in Camertine and did not want to be left behind in town with the sheriff. The group spent the next hour working out the details. Their offers were accepted, and Marlock offered to supply them with equipment. The dwarf was introduced as Thern Stonecarver. He was tall for a dwarf. His long, braided red hair and his beard hung down past his belt. Thern came from Dwarvar, the High Forge, as it was called in the language of men. His presence in Burke was a direct result of the High Forge having lost some people to the Goblin Raiders. His job was to cooperate with the human authorities in correcting the problem, and to make sure independent action was taken promptly if they delayed. Kagan, not considering whether the news might be ill-received, let Thern know of Soli's death, and that they suspected he was looking for another dwarf named Bolgi. The red-haired dwarf nodded gravely upon hearing the news. He only wanted to know if Soli had died in combat. Nothing else was said on the matter. Captain Tor would accompany them, leaving the next day at first light. Thern wanted to go sooner, but Marlock insisted that by the time preparations were made, it would be dusk. When the page returned, he was immediately handed another note, this one much shorter, and told, Give this to the quartermaster. Take them with you. And you four, you leave at dawn. As you're already at the north end, we'll meet by your inn. Don't forget the map. The party is, at this point, taken to the quartermaster, but we will linger here with Sheriff Marlock for a time. Firstly, we must find out if he has recognized Eredine. I think it very unlikely that a town so far from her usual hunting grounds would know her face, though I do think that a man like Marlock might be aware of her existence. I'll roll a d20. On a 20, he'll know who she is. On a 19, he'll be suspicious enough to actively do some investigating. With any other result, I'll rule that she flies below his radar. The roll. Well, okay then. I need to make one more roll to see how Marlock reacts generally towards Kagan and the others. Since Kagan is acting as a kind of leader here, I'll apply his reaction bonus. The result will determine how well the party will be outfitted. I'm referring to the quality of equipment and also whether it is to be a loan or given in payment. Marlock has a surplus of equipment, since Berg used to be a garrison town, but he lacks the coin to keep many men-at-arms on the payroll now, so this arrangement is ideal for him. The roll will get Kagan's plus one bonus, but regardless of the roll, the party will join the expedition. Here's the roll. I've got a five. Not great. Even with Kagan's plus one, it's below average. The equipment will all be on loan then. Some of them might get substandard gear too. The quartermaster will read over the note and begin stacking arms and armor in front of the party. Everything they take will be meticulously recorded and signed for in a ledger. When all is said and done, here is what they're given. Kagan and Gyrios each get a suit of chain mail, a wooden shield, and a leather backpack. Kagan also gets leather boots. Eredin gets leather boots, a suit of leather armor, and a short bow, along with a quiver of 12 arrows. Umura declines all offered arms and armor, 
but does accept the leather boots. All characters receive 10 days' worth of dried rations. Everybody except Umura will enjoy a substantial improvement in armor class now. It's worth a quick reminder here that in basic D&D, the lower the armor class, the better. While suited up, their updated stats will be Kagan, AC 4. Umura, AC 9, that's unchanged. Girios, AC 3, that's a 4 for the chain mail and shield plus his dexterity bonus. Eridine, AC 6, that's a 7 for the leather armor plus her dexterity bonus. Wow, it took until episode 9 to get the characters equipped with just the basics. Life's tough around here. Still, better late than never, and this is one hell of an improvement. The party left the armory with arms and packs full of heavy equipment, but it was not yet time to return to the inn. First, they visited the market to purchase a few items. Of course, Kagan and Gyrios were chomping at the bit to hear why they'd been made complicit in the deception over Eredin's name, and so Eredin explained to them as she had to Umura the previous night. I've made mistakes, she concluded, but I was never involved in the worst of the crimes. The warrant is the same for every member of my old band, no matter what we individually did, and I have no intention of turning myself in for things I didn't do. Kagan took the news in stride, but Gyrios looked troubled. He was struggling with having been her only defender back when they'd found her. Did this make him some kind of accomplice? One day I'll make amends on my terms for what I've done. But that's really my business and no one else's. Girios was not entirely sure he agreed with the girl, but at present he said nothing. He needed time to sort it out. Before long they reached the marketplace. More than anything else, they still needed clothes and so they visited a seamstress who provided them with simple clothing to wear under their armor. As Umura did not wear armor, she ordered something a little more presentable, leggings and a layered tunic of olive and cream, with laces crisscrossing at the sleeves and abdomen. The seamstress chatted cheerfully as she worked, and asked for two silver bits when finished. Kagan gave her three, and they changed into their new clothing right there in the shop. The rest of the silver coins went to purchase two bottles of Zacian sour wine and a simple meal of bread, butter, and black venison sausage. By the time they got back to the North End Inn, the sun was low in the sky. Three of them still had wounds and were feeling quite run down. The plan was to spend the evening resting, reading, and talking beside the fireplace after dropping off their purchases. They entered the inn and called a hello to Norris who was perched at the sill, intent on the movement of some birds, before heading up the stairs. Gurdon could be heard at work in the kitchen. Partway up the staircase, they encountered another guest coming in the opposite direction. There was an awkward moment when the companions had to flatten themselves against the wall so the man could move by, for the stairway was fairly narrow. The guest, a dignified-looking gentleman of middle years, was duly embarrassed by the situation. He apologized in a smooth baritone as he slipped by. Oh dear, how rude of me. I beg your pardon, ladies. The apology was hardly necessary, for the man was slender enough that, as he slipped by them, the silk of his fine shirt barely touched them. All of his clothes were very fine, indeed. He was extremely handsome. He had an oiled black goatee and a perfectly bald head, and he had blue eyes that twinkled like jewels. Before he turned the corner and disappeared from sight, he offered one last bow. Raffenfell frowned. He'd been hoping not to see this group of men and women, but from their appearance, several things were clear. 
Their wounds indicated that this was almost certainly the group that forced him to abandon his laboratory. He would find a way to make them pay for that in time. He must be careful, ever so careful, for he had noticed that one of the women held a folded suit of boiled leathers bearing the oaken shield insignia of Burke. That meant they'd spoken with the sheriff, and what reason would they have to conceal what they knew? None he could think of. The laboratory was lost for good then. A whole year lost. Well, not lost. He'd improved greatly on his formula, but still, this was frustrating. After narrowly escaping the Kingswood with his life, a pair of giant spiders had wanted to make a meal of him. Raphael had come to Burke and taken a room at the North End Inn. He surmised correctly that if his enemy were to survive his angels, they would probably come this way too and almost certainly stay at the first inn they saw. Raphael wondered about the dwarf. Was he perhaps killed? The thought made him smile. Later, tonight, he would face a chair toward their rooms and cast his spell. Then he would learn all he needed to know. As for right now, he needed to gather a little information on the Lord of Burke. It never hurt to have friends in high places. He and this Lord Skelling, was it? They were going to be very good friends. Meanwhile, back at the North End Inn, Kagan grabbed Umura by the elbow. Did you notice that? That, Kagan, was unmistakable. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps a great deal. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale. I'm also on Instagram, or you can just send me an email at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. A very special thanks goes to this episode's guest voice actor, John Lopez, playing the role of City Guard. Follow John on Twitter at RPG underscore solo. John, your contribution to the show is much appreciated. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at SavePodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.